Welcome again to Grace Bible Church. As we continue this morning, we continue our we continue our study in Ephesians. Uh, you'll find, as has been pointed out earlier, you'll find your your the outline in the, the bulletin on the right side of the bulletin. Uh, I have titled my sermon this morning, Tropies of Grace, Part 1. This will be, be uh, a few parts as we go through the next 10 verses, the first 10 verses of Chapter 2. Uh, there'll be uh, a few sermons here. This particular sermon, and you'll, I think you'll see how it's structured, this particular sermon is describing your hopeless condition before Christ saved you. Your hopeless condition before Christ saved you. So let me read, let me pray, and then let me read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So if you could turn in your Bibles there and, and put your fingers finger there, saving your place in Ephesians 2 as I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again and praise you this morning that you have brought us here in this place. We thank you for sending your Son that we might not have to suffer the wrath for our sin. We thank you that you have made us alive. You brought us life and you have raised us up and you have seated us with him in the heavenly places. What a wonderful, glorious truth, especially as we consider our lives here on earth and the difficulties and suffering and the sinfulness that we struggle with every day. May we find encouragement as we hear this sermon preached this morning, as we hear your word preached this morning. Lord, as I pray many times, I pray that you would increase, that I would decrease, that I would, as was said in, this men, in the men's study this morning, that I would get out of the way and let your word shine through. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God." not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Death. Death. Death is a subject that we speak very little about today, even in our pulpits. Just a few decades ago, death was a subject which was on everyone's mind. I remember as a young boy uh, hearing my grandmother talk about having dead family members lie in the living room awaiting burial the next day. They would actually stand vigil over the bodies waiting for them to be buried the next day. Oh, yeah, and, and old cemeteries. Have you, ever, have you ever explored an old cemetery from more than a century ago? A few years ago, Angie and I explored my grandparents' and great-grandparents' cemetery that, that we, we walked through it and we wandered over to an older area of the cemetery where actually I think it was my great-grandfather was, was buried uh, to find his grave. And what we found were the graves were mostly from the earlier early 20th century. And I was amazed at how many young people were in, that, in those graves. Many, many of them at, who lived during that time didn't make it out of childhood. My grandfather, who was born in 1900, put that in 
perspective. My grandfather was born in 1900. His life expectancy at the time was 47 years. Now, we don't think much of death anymore. With the advent of modern medicine, especially antibiotics, people live much longer than they ever have, or at least in the modern era, if you will, because we know from Genesis that some of those folks lived to be 900 plus years old. Now, I find it intriguing I find it intriguing that while we don't consider death in its stark reality, we do glorify death in another sense. We avoid considering our own deaths, but our culture celebrates death in the form of horror movies and Halloween costumes. We completely avoid death by putting our old and infirmed in nursing homes so that we don't have to deal with those things. But we have, so that we don't have to deal with death and dying, that is, yet our culture finds the Hollywood forms of death entertaining. I believe that our culture avoids the stark reality of death because we don't want to consider what happens after death. Now, you might even be asking why a preacher in this day and age would even start a sermon or introduce a sermon with a morbid subject such as death. Preachers in our day try their best to avoid this subject, but the Bible does not shy away from it. It doesn't shy away from the subjects of death and life after death. Brothers and sisters, the faithful preacher never shies away from the subject the Bible, subjects that the Bible teaches. In an article I read recently, John Piper draws a distinction between preachers who desire to entertain and those preachers who are Bible-oriented and submit to the authority of the Bible. Here's what he says. He says that of the, of the Bible-oriented preacher, he says this, that he has a sense of submission to the Bible and a sense that the Bible alone has the words of true and lasting significance. These, these things mark the Bible-oriented preacher, but not the entertainment-oriented preacher. People leave the preaching of a Bible-oriented preacher with a sense that the Bible is supremely authoritative and important and wonderfully good news. They feel less entertained than struck at the greatness of God and the weighty power of His Word. Now, what I want you to consider this morning, then, beloved, is that the Bible constrains us to consider death and life after death. Brethren, let me give you a couple more subjects that the Bible does not, does not shy away from. Sin. Sin. And the darkness of it and God's judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. You see, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all men face God's judgment. Brothers and sisters, we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2. The first ten verses of this, of this chapter uniquely describe man's predicament as a sinner who not only faces physical death, but is already spiritually dead. And as such, as such, he faces God's judgment for his or her sin. This is, we can't shy away from this. We can't shy away from what the Bible teaches about sin, death, and judgment. Now, this morning, we're going to begin, as I have said, we're going to begin these first ten verses of uh, chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, these verses can be broken down into three phases of the Christian's walk. Verses 1 through 3, we're going to see this morning, is your hopeless condition before Christ saved you. And in verses uh, 4 through 7 will be Christ's astounding intervention into your life. And verses 8 through 10 is your glorious condition after Christ. Today, today, as I've said, we're going to look at the first three verses, which show us our hopeless condition before Christ. In these verses, Paul gives three characteristics of your hopeless condition before Christ saved you by His grace. First, you were a dead man walking. That's, that's verse 1. Secondly, you were a doomed man walking. That's verse 2. And thirdly, you were a debauched man walking. That's verse 3. Let's look at the first characteristic of your hopeless 
situation before Christ saved you. Paul writes in verse 1, and look at your text, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, Paul's statement here, beloved, uh, is, is as dire as the beginning of this sermon. But Paul clearly wants you, the apostle clearly wants you and I to understand, and he wants the Ephesians ultimately directly to understand the dire nature of their situation prior to salvation. Now, before we begin to work through these verses stepwise, I want to focus on the very first word of chapter 2. And you, if you look in your text, you'll see, and. Now, you probably realize, I, I hope you do, and if you don't, I'm going to teach you this morning, that the chapter and verse divisions were not placed there by the original authors. They were placed there much later for the, for the ease of, for ease of reference. Now, I'm thankful for them because they help us, help us ensure that we're on the same page as we talk about Scripture. But sometimes the placement of these divisions can cause some confusion. You might be tempted to think, because of this chapter 2 division, you might be tempted to think that Paul is starting a new section here. But I don't believe that's correct. I believe he's continuing his thought from chapter 1. Let me give you an important guideline when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Always follow the context and the grammar. Always follow the context and the grammar. And that's important because I see so many people making uh, profound errors in their understanding of Scripture when they don't, they don't follow the, the context of what's going on. They take the verse or whatever they're trying to prove, they take it out of context, and they don't follow the grammar. So if you want to stay out of trouble when it comes to Bible interpretation, Always follow the context and the grammar. And I'm telling you, context is king. Context is king. In this, in this case, Paul uses the word and. In the Greek language, just to give you a little grammar lesson, the Greek language, there are a couple of words which can be translated and. Uh, de and chi. There's those two words. Paul uses actually the second one, chi, which indicates a continuation of his argument. In other words... He wants the Ephesians to understand how the power of, of God has powerfully intersected their lives. That was the subject, the power of God working in them. That was the subject from chapter 1. And he has continued that, and what he's saying now is that that is powerfully intersected in their own lives, uh, in the lives of the Ephesians, and in the life of every Christian who lives, or who has ever lived. Now, this is reinforced by the fact that the two main verbs of the sentence which spans in the first, to the, in the first ten verses are found in verse, or chapter 2, verse 6. Namely, that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. That is the main point that Paul is making in these verses. Obviously, there's a lot of side points, there's a lot of important information here, and we're going to hit all of it. But I want you to know that his main point is that you have been raised up and you have been seated with him in the heavenly places. This was done as a demonstration of the surpassing greatness of his power toward those who believe. That's from chapter 1. In other words, the same power which raised Christ from the dead and seated him on the throne of God has also raised you from the dead and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. If we don't understand then our dire circumstances prior to Christ, then we cannot possibly understand the demonstration of the immense power of God in raising us from our spiritual death. Now, I also want to point out that Paul uses the same pronoun here in 2.1 as he did back in, back in chapter 1, verse 13, when he proclaimed, In him you also after hearing the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. After referring to the church as we throughout the passage, he now uses the word you. Again, what we're seeing here is that it's powerfully intersecting your life. In Ephesians 1.13, Paul makes it clear that at salvation you were, you were Sealed, that is, with the Holy Spirit of promise. Here in 2.1, he makes it clear that God's power has powerfully intersected with each and, every one, each and every one of you, each and every individual in the church. He has powerfully saved each person. He has made you alive in Christ. 
He has raised you and seated you in the heavenly places with Christ. That is, if you know Him. If He has saved you. As I have said, this can't be fully appreciated without us fully understanding the lostness, the utter lostness of our condition prior to Christ. So Paul says, and you were dead. Now, two weeks ago, we learned that the Bible teaches that there are three types of death. Here, Paul describes our state or condition before God showed mercy and took action to save us. Now, when we think of death, generally speaking, We think of those who have physically passed away, those who have physically died. But the Bible speaks of two other kinds of death that we must acknowledge. There is a spiritual death which encompasses separation, the separation from God and the condemnation of God. This death occurred when Adam and Eve rebelled against God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we also learn that physical death is the fruit of spiritual death. That by by necessity, if there's spiritual death, there is physical death. This is proven by the fact that all but just a handful of people have suffered the fate of death. Again, the writer of Hebrews writes this, Hebrews 9.27, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, it is appointed for man, because of his spiritual condition, because of his condemnation before God, because of his separation from the life giver, it is appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. This is the physical death that we're speaking of. And as scary as the first two types of death can be, the third type is the scariest of all. This is the eternal death, suffering the wrath of God. Beloved, we were all born dead and faced spiritually dead, and face physical death, but we also, in that condition, face eternal death. Paul says this is true because you are, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. Now, Paul uses here two different words to describe the reasons for our condition in Christ, or before Christ, that is, our trespasses and sins. The first word, trespasses, describe, describes our active participation in acts which are against God. These are acts of active condemnation. This is when one, when a person rebels against God and incurs God's wrath against them. Said a different way, we cross the line and we and God reacts against us. The second word that Paul uses describes our sinful condition. In other words, it describes our nature. Together, when you pull these two together, it forms a powerful description of our sin and our sin nature. They they connote more than just an inadvertent mistake. They express a conscious, willful action against God's holiness and His righteousness. They They denote a failure to live as one should live. As humans, as those created by God in the image of God, we are fully responsible for our sinful acts of treachery against God, our Creator. Yes, we were conceived in sin, but we have no excuse. We willfully sin against God's holiness. We have no other choice. Now, let me be crystal clear here. We are sinful because we have committed trespasses and sins. I'm sorry, say that again. We are not sinful because we have committed trespasses and sins. But the text is is more thorough than that. We sin, we actually sin, we commit trespasses because we are sinful. There is without a that is this is without any doubt a true statement. David proclaimed in Psalm 51 5, he proclaimed this Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceive me. So what I'm what I want to make sure you understand is is that we actually actively sin because we are sinful. We are born in sin. We as David said, in sin my mother conceived me. I was brought forth in iniquity. But don't make a mistake here. You may not have committed the original sin in the garden. You may not have been standing there with Adam, but you all, by all means, are no less guilty than Adam. Said another way, said it, just say it a different way, 
you would have committed the sin, sin the same as Adam. Matter of fact, I would be the first to tell you I probably would have knocked Eve over trying to commit the sin. At least he showed, maybe showed a little restraint. You have no excuse, beloved. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. You are sinful. You actively sin against a holy God. And before Christ, if you know Him, you were spiritually dead. You were a dead man walking. We all were. Paul exclaimed in, to the Romans in Romans 3.9, We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That is, we're all under the bondage of sin. Romans 3.10, as it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And as such, as such, we could not choose anything but evil and could never seek after God. Now, it's funny that there has been some discussion in my family about free will and what that means. According to Paul, man does not have free will in the sense that we may, not, that we may consider it to be truly free. Let me, let me just say it this way. Our will before Christ is in bondage to sin. Yes, we have agency in the sense that we make choices every day, but our choices, because of our sin nature, are fully dictated by our sin nature. We make, we make choices based on, if you are outside of Christ, that is, based on the fact of your sin nature. As such, as such, we could never have chosen righteousness. We could have never have chosen to please God. All of our deeds, every one of them, according to Isaiah, are filthy rags. Even the things that we want to do that are quote-unquote good are not good because they have our own glory in mind and not God's glory. You see, people want to hold on to some autonomy in this fashion. They want to believe that we could choose God. But Paul is very clear here. You were dead. What does dead mean? Dead's dead. Dead people, dead people don't usually do a whole lot. We cannot choose God prior to Christ. We cannot choose to please Him. Now I want to make one important contrast as we, as before we move forward. In chap, chapter 1, where do we as Christians find ourselves? Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Throughout chapter 1, Paul emphasizes over and over that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. Why is this such a glorious truth? Because before Christ, we were in our sins, our trespasses and sins. We, that is what made our situation so dire. In, in these verses, what we're seeing then is that there are cl two clearly different spiritual realms. One is ruled by Christ. And the other is ruled by Satan, who has been subjected to Christ, according to verse 21, but he still is the ruler of the power of the air. So if you are not in Christ, then you are in this other spiritual realm. You need to be removed from that realm and brought into the realm of Christ. Before Christ, we were part of the spiritually dead who were ruled by Satan. You could do nothing. We could do nothing to save ourselves, but... This dire situation, this incredibly dire situation, is what makes God's mercy and grace so incredible. Beloved, if you don't believe what I'm saying, then your argument really isn't with me, it's with the text of Scripture. The, the Scripture is very, very clear. Our true condition and our dire nature of our, the dire nature of our situation before Christ is clear. We were dead. We could not choose righteousness. It was God who intervened and made us alive. I believe we'll, this will become clearer as we delve further into these verses. Let's look at the second of the, second of the 
three characteristics of our hopeless condition before Christ saved us by His grace. Secondly, first you were a dead man walking. Secondly, you were a doomed man walking. Paul continues. Look at, look at your text. He says this. He says this, that, that he speaks of your trespasses and sin, sins in which you formerly walked. In which you formerly walked. Let's focus on those words. In other words, before Christ, we were, as I said earlier, completely immersed in our sins. Paul uses the phrase, in which. You, cannot, you can't see this from the English translations, but the word in is, is specific to our sin or our sin nature. It, he's not talking so much about the trespasses. He's connecting it to our sin or our sin nature. In other words, everything we do is tainted by our sin natures. We are immersed in sin. We are saturated in sin. Now, I need to point out again that this is opposite of being in Christ, which is now the believer's situation. In this verse, Paul, Paul then mentions our walk. That what he means there and what he's, what he's getting after is that it's our holistic actions. It describes the whole of our actions or the entire conduct of our lives. In the Bible, the human life is described as a walk along a path or as a, a way, as in a highway or a pathway. Jesus used similar imagery in Matthew chapter 7. In verse 13, he says, enter, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, speaking of the gate. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. In other words, Jesus envisioned life as a path, as a gate, as a path which is to be walked. And in Matthew 7, he speaks of two ways, which leads one which leads to destruction and the other which leads to life. The psalmist uses similar, similar imagery in Psalm chapter 1. In verse, verse 1, he says this, Psalm 1.1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. Again, we see this idea or this imagery of, of paths and, 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 and ways and our walk. In verse 6, he says this, For the the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Beloved, according to the, to the Word of God, there are two paths which can be followed, the path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. The path which leads to destruction is a wide path which many are on. And, and according to Paul and according to the verses that we're in, we were all on this, this wide path, on this wicked path that led to destruction. Now let me tie back to what Paul said in verse 1. He said that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we, you all know, we, we all know what trespassing is, right? A trespass is when we deviate from the path into a place we're not supposed to go. It is, it is an intentional deviation from what is right, from the right place or the right path. You probably heard of sin then as being as missing the mark, and you probably even heard the analogy of the arrow and bullseye. Sin is described has been described as missing the mark or missing the bullseye. But I don't think that this is a helpful analogy for sin. Arrows and bullseyes were not what the biblical writers had in mind when they were speaking about sin. They were thinking about paths and roads and ways. This is this has the idea of being on the wrong path or missing the intended goal. In other words, we're on a path which is headed in the wrong direction. And therefore, we cannot make it to the right place. This refers to, to a general distortion of our aims with God's aims. Our goals don't meet or don't agree with God's goals. We're on the wrong path heading in the wrong direction. This is what Paul is referring to. So our trespasses then refer to our decisions to diverge from the path of righteousness, while sin refers to a nature that is completely at odds with what God aims for us to do. We make our own paths instead of the path of righteousness, which God has said is the correct path. God has given us the correct path in His Word, and we go and we're on a completely different path. 
That's the point. We're going a completely different direction. And this characterizes the whole of our lives before Christ. We walked according to the, according to the course of this world. Look at your text. We formerly walked, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You see, in other words, before Christ, our walk, our walk was not according to righteousness, but according to the world. We were completely influenced by the world and its values. We gladly adhered to the world's rules. We desired to be in line with the world. We found our worth and how we stacked up to the world and its standards. Our, our success, the, the success of worldly success then, it was measured by money, by power, by influence that we might have on others. Friends, this is one of the grave dangers of social media, especially for our youth. There's a constant desire to measure up to the world's standards. We need to be especially cognizant of this because especially for our youth because because many of them are unsaved. Therefore, they are in grave danger of desiring to measure up to the world's standards. Even the redeemed here can struggle with this in our flesh. We forget that everyone puts their best face on Instagram. They don't usually put the face that doesn't have makeup, right? They don't usually put the picture of what they look like when they wake up in the morning. They put their best face on Instagram or whatever social media site is your favorite site. We rarely see the grave difficulties of people's lives. We rarely do. That is unless they thrive on on the attention of always struggling with something, and we all have seen those folks as well. But you see, the point is that standard is a worldly standard. We fail to recognize that our success as Christians does not lie in money, power, or influence. We don't have to be educated in the best schools. We don't, have to, we don't have to be measured by the standard of this world. Beloved, before we were Christians, this is the point of the passage, before we were believers, we constantly had to check to see if we measured up. Did we have the best credentials? Check. Did we have a great resume? Check. Did we come from an influential family? Check. Do we have a large bank account? Check. Do we have a large retirement? Check. Do we take extravagant family vacations? Check. Do we make sure that our daughters and sons are married in extravagant weddings? Check. We do this because we're measuring ourselves against the standard of the world. That's what we were before we were believers. Paul says that we walked according to the age of the world. No matter the time frame in history, there's always been a worldly way. A path of wickedness which is according to the current age. And it is a dangerous path which the spiritually dead trod. This path leads to destruction as it leads further and further away from God. This highway, if you will, is full of the walking dead. They are dead. They are the doomed, unless God intervenes and changes their path. Brothers and sisters, this is the path that you and I were on. This was our situation before Christ intervened. We were not only dead men walking, we were doomed men walking. And we walked, look at the text, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit which is now working in the sons of disobedience. We were walking in conformity to the prince of the power of the air. Now in in Greek and Hebrew culture, the air refers to a fallen spiritual realm. Before Christ, we conformed to everything in this realm of darkness. As such, it was the ruler of this world who was calling the shots on our lives. We did not live in conformity to Christ, the ruler of the new world or the next world. We lived according to the ruler of this world. Back when I did ministry in the Los Angeles County Jails, we would go to the bars to talk to the inmates. First, as you approached the bars, you had to ask the deputy if you could actually go to the bars and talk to someone. 
And, you know, they were actually, if you will, the rightful rulers of the jail. But once you approached the bars, you had to talk to what was called the shot caller. He, he, was, the, he was the person in the, in the dorm that called the shots for the people in the dorm. Now, they could, believe it or not, they could easily deny an inmate the ability to pr- approach the bars. They were the rulers of the world inside the dormitory or inside the bars. The deputies, believe it or not, largely left that power structure and allowed, intact and allowed the shot callers to do just that, to call the shots. Friends, before Christ, Satan and his minions called the shots for your life. Just like those shot callers were able to deny the inmates the ability to talk to us, Satan and his minions called the shots for you. God is the rightful ruler. Christ has been put in, these these rulers and authorities have been put in subjection to Christ. But if you're an unbeliever, God allows Satan to rule your life and you gladly submitted to him. If If you're a believer, if you are currently an unbeliever, you gladly submit to him today. You had no other choice but to let the demonic realm rule over your life. And sadly, as an unbeliever, you liked it that way. It came naturally to you. You walked according to the, the Spirit, which is now walking in, or working in the sons of disobedience. You liked it that way. I, I remember there was a guy who was a Christian who was let out of jail. He'd been in jail for many years. And he was let out of jail. And, and he went home. And just a few months later, he came back. He was back in jail. And the reason he was back in jail is because he had become so accustomed to the structure of jail life that he didn't know how to live outside. I mean, that's, that's how you were. You're so accustomed. when you Before Christ saved you, you were so accustomed to this world, you didn't know any better. You didn't know any better. Beloved brothers and sisters, Friends, there is a spirit of this age which is now working among those who are lost. According to Jesus, the Spirit of God, in John 3, the Spirit of God blows in the hearts of those who believe in Christ. This same, this, not this same Spirit, this Spirit, the Spirit that we're talking about in Ephesians 2, this Spirit blows in the souls of unbelievers. And before Christ, this Spirit blew in your heart and you were bound by it. If you don't know Christ today, then you are not only a dead man walking, you are a doomed man walking. I pray that God would intervene in your heart. I pray that you would call out to God and turn to Him in saving faith. Oh, that you would come to see the horror of your situation. Earlier I mentioned our culture's infatuation with Hollywood-style death. There's a great love for zombie movies, the undead. Friend, if you're not in Christ today, you are the undead. You are a dead man walking. You may be physically alive, you may have a heart that's beating, but you are a dead man walking. And you are on the same pathway as many other who are the walking dead. And you have no idea of your situation. You, what you do comes naturally to you. I pray that God would open your eyes to truly smell the stench the stench of death around you, I rec- I, and recognize the sweet aroma of Christ, the sweet aroma of victory in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15 that believers are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are being pre- pre- perishing, that is, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? If you're here today and you're not a believer, that stench, that stench of death, I pray that you would know it. That God would save you from it. This leads us to our third and final characteristic of our hopeless condition before Christ saved us by His grace. You were not only a dead man walking, a doomed man walking, but you were a debauched man walking. A debauched man walking. Look at verse 3. 
Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Paul continues to paint a picture of total depravity. Or said a better way, in a better way, he continues to paint a picture of total inability. Total inability. There was before Christ a total inability to extricate yourself from your sinfulness. And beloved, according to Paul, this sin affects every part of our being and affects our every fiber. Listen to Charles Spurgeon says this, As the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, then you are deceived. End quote. Beloved, before Christ, you lived in the lusts of your flesh. You were controlled by the lusts of your flesh. You were locked into the age of this world and you gladly joined into the ways of the world. Your desires were completely in line with the world. Your flesh loved it and it loved its ways. Now when Paul speaks of the, of the flesh, he's, he means our, the fallenness of our flesh. Now we must understand that, that the flesh is not in, inherently evil. Adam himself was not inherently wicked. Jesus was a, a man of flesh and blood. There was no wickedness about him, but he was truly a man. Therefore, again, the flesh is not inherently evil. In the future, we'll be clothed with a new flesh, our glorified bodies. According to 2 Corinthians 5.2, we will be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And that which is mortal will be swallowed up in life. And in Pauline theology, uh, the flesh refers then to our fallenness, the fallenness of our flesh. And therefore, when we're saved, therefore we say we don't get this new body at the beginning. We're still in our fallen flesh. We still suffer the effects of the fall. We struggle with sin. We still face physical death. When, but when we're saved, the fallenness of our flesh wars with the Spirit. The fallenness of our flesh wars with the Spirit. Now, we have to understand that in unbelievers, this war with the flesh doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. You see, they're nothing but fallen flesh. And as such, they look at your text, they indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind. They had no other choice but to do so. It's consistent with their nature as, as a sinner. They have a sinful nature. This is, the reason, this is the reason we can identify false teachers many times. Because Not only because of their doctrine, but because of their lusts. They are unredeemed, therefore they can't help but live according to the lusts of their flesh. They live according to their fallen nature. It's different with the believer, beloved different with you and I if we truly know Christ. The believer fights against his sin. Sometimes he loses the battle, sometimes he wins, but there's always a battle between the fallen flesh, the fallen flesh and the spirit. John Stott says this, the sin, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet, but they cannot live in harmony. End quote. Let me say that again. Sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet, but they cannot live in harmony. End quote. If you're here today and you have a battle with sin, that's a pretty good indication that you're truly a believer. If you truly are battling against your sin, if you're identifying those, those sinful tendencies in your life, and you are fleeing them. That's a pretty good indication that you are truly a believer. If you're one who examines yourself to see if you're truly in the faith, according to 2 Corinthians 13, that is a good indication that you are truly a believer. Look at the text. But those who were not in Christ, and you before you were in Christ, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Brethren, it is 
the sin nature of the unbeliever that is condemned by God. You know, there are many who deny the doctrine of God's eternal wrath. But we can't ignore what Scripture teaches. Those who are, those who are in their sins, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, face eternal, the eternal wrath of God. According to Paul, they are children of wrath by their nature. They stand condemned before a holy God. We may not like it. Like it. We may wish that they weren't. But it is a truth that if you are in your sin, if you are, if you are not a believer, if you are spiritually dead, you face the wrath of God. You are by nature a, children, a child of, the, of, of wrath even as the rest. I mean, he's speaking of those who, who are currently on that road to destruction. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There are those who suppress the truth. The truth of who God is. The truth of his, who, that He created us in His image. That truth is in their heart, and they suppress that truth. They, they hold it down. They suppress that truth in unrighteousness, is what Paul says. Just this past week, I watched a, a debate between two atheists and, and James White along with Jeff Durbin. In the debate, one of the atheists became so unhinged, if you, if you don't believe me, watch it. You can find it on Twitter or whatever. They became so unhinged that there was... There is no chance for civil debate. This one of the atheists was just incredibly, I mean, off I mean, just it was just incredible to watch. He he did nothing but spew his anger against the God of Scripture. I mean, that's all it was. His anger and contempt toward God were evident for all to see. At one point in the debate, this is how bad it got. At one point in the debate, he challenged. He challenged James and Jeff to drink antifreeze. And he actually brought the antifreeze to the debate. And he had it hidden up front. And he took a glass and he poured the antifreeze into a glass. And he was walking around with this glass of antifreeze, challenging them to drink it. To prove that they were believers according to Mark 16, 18, if you're familiar with that passage. He was so unhinged that as I was watching the debate, I was fearful that he may drink it himself in his wrath. And I'm not at all certain he would have lifted a finger to stop Jeff Durbin and James White from drinking it had they done so. That's how unhinged he was as, a, as an unbeliever. That's really the picture of the unbeliever, beloved. They are full of wrath because they know they face God's wrath. They stand condemned before a holy God. And I started this sermon talking about death and dying. I also warned about the certainty of judgment and God's wrath. Beloved, as dark as it is to speak of spiritual death and judgment and God's wrath, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have nothing at all to fear. You have been made alive in Christ he has taken the Father's wrath upon Himself in your stead. We don't have to fear death or God's judgment. We look forward to it, right? We look forward to it. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. Never fear dying, beloved. Dying is the last, but the least matter that a Christian has to be anxious about. End quote. John MacArthur says this, where sin has been removed, death can only interrupt the earthly life and usher in the heavenly. End quote. For the believer, there is everything to look forward to in death and nothing to fear. But for the unbeliever, who's spiritually dead in their sins, they have the fear of God's judgment, the fear of God's wrath. If you're sitting here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I beg you, be reconciled to Him. I beg you to turn to Him. I beg you to trust in Christ who went to the cross to die for your sins so that 
He took the Father's wrath so that you might not have to. We preach the Gospel often. We preach the Gospel often. I, Phil, Phil pointed out earlier, we were in our men's meeting, I, uh, the two weeks ago when I preached the excursus, I'll call it, getting ready for Ephesians 2, that it was basically the Gospel. And I went through every one of my five points and I realized that they were basically the Gospel points. And I didn't even point that out. I didn't even realize it. I don't want it to become roads. If you're here today and you don't know Him, don't walk away from here without turning to Him, without trusting. You can never know. You never know when your life may end. You never know. You're spiritually dead today, but you never know when you may be physically dead the next moment. You could fall and be dead before you hit the floor, facing God, facing His judgment, His wrath. There is an answer. And those of you who know that answer and who have trusted in Him, we can look at the black darkness of our sin before Christ, and we can see the diamonds shine forth. We can see the beauty of what Christ has done in raising us up what God has done in raising us up and seating us in the heavenly places with, with Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that we get to be with Christ. We get to spend eternity with Him because of what He's done. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You and I do pray You would save those who don't know You. Pray that they would hear the gospel. Pray that they would heed it. They would trust in you. Turn to you. They would come to, to understand, smell the stench of death around them. And smell the sweet aroma of Christ. As they hear the gospel preached. The victory that's found in Christ. Victory in Jesus victory over sin and death. We thank you and praise you for this in Christ's name. Amen.